Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Talking Serverless Podcast. I am your co-host, Josh Proto. And today, I am really glad because we are joined today by Alan Helton. Alan is a serverless cloud architect at Tyler Technologies, now a company that is imagining a world where all city, uh, county, and regional government services are connected within a healthy digital infrastructure. As an architect, Alan has a strong focus on API design and standardization, event-driven architectures, and software automation. Outside of work, he can be found running in the acres of uh, quote-unquote fake country, as he calls it, where he will soon be tending to his own farm animals. Yeehaw! Uh, He is also an AWS community builder and a dedicated tech writer. Uh, All that info and more will be located in our podcast description below in our show notes, uh, so please feel free to check out after this episode. Alan. Thank you so much for being here. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful, Josh. Happy to be here. Rocking. I love it, love it, love it. Uh, I'm also doing well today. And um, really good to have you on uh, for an episode of Talking Serverless Podcast. Now, I always like to start off uh, start off the podcast by just getting to know a little bit more about our guests and sort of, you know, the classic question of how did you find yourself in serverless? You know, what led you here to this technology? I would say accident and happenstance as it would uh, as it would be so i've been i've been at tyler technologies for 10 years and for the first seven of those 10 years i was a net engineer straight out of college uh, started building thick client apps in net had a pretty good time i mean i no regrets this is a lot of fun um but you know worked my way out of the entry-level position up into a, a lead engineer position in that amount of time. And right around three years ago, I was promoted to manager slash tech lead of cloud stuff uh, in my division at Tyler. And that was about all the description that I got when we started uh, cloud stuff. And so what we did is we, we had uh, we did a bunch of proof of concepts uh, in various different technologies. We tried low code. We tried an in-house uh, tech stack that we had. And then we tried finally AWS to come in. They, they came in and did a two-week primer, I guess, with us on, on building in the cloud. And they were pushing serverless really, really hard. And my team and I latched onto that, really, really liked it, and ran with it. That was the one that won our POC contest, if you will. We decided this is the best one. This is what we should build cloud apps in. And here we are, three years later, with uh, a lot of experience, a lot of fun, a lot of serverless. Wow, that's very, very exciting. You know, I think that's also like a relatable situation for a lot of folks, or at least, you know, there's a lot of POCs being developed in a lot of criteria that, you know, organizations are trying to evaluate. So I know one thing I wanted to sort of ask right off the bat, because it really intrigues me, this question is, you know, what were you looking for when you were comparing these different paradigms, uh, serverless, different AWS services, low code? Like, uh, what were the points where you found serverless was really over-indexing for you and your team that chose you to sort of, you know, follow this path? Yeah, uh, the total cost of ownership is is my answer. And that that's that's a big answer, right? There, there's a whole lot that that you can interpret with total cost of ownership. Uh, that's how we were assessing. So total cost of ownership means as far as uh, the company's value, where, where is it? Where, where are all the pieces of that value that come out of this tech stack or application? So it's things like developer experience, rate of development, uh, maintainability. Can we hire somebody off the street to do it uh, if we needed to as an industry standard? Things like that. And, you know, there were, of course, pros and cons to everything. This was something that was totally foreign to us internally. We had never done anything like that. But we really weighed on, uh, or I guess pushed on, yeah, but we can hire for it. There are people that can do this. And we can just ask. We can say, hey, I have a serverless spot open. Can somebody come help me, please? And they can, and they do. And I've done that. I've hired uh, four engineers, four serverless specifically, and it does not take very long to to find help that way. That, and that's like, you know, I think that's a, 
that's definitely a, a, a great point to mention, like the total cost of over uh, ownership. And from from some other colleagues that I've uh, that I've talked to, I think they would be quite envious to hear that you found it fairly easy to hire a serverless engineer. So I think it is. Uh, I think it's a skill set that's continuing to grow, and 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 that way. And if you are doing really good serverless work, I think you know. I think they do flock. I've had an easy time too. So um, I, I kind of agree with the agree with the statement. It's a it's a good place. It's a good place to be in. And um, yeah, no, it's definitely a good place to be in. Now, for your your for your current role, um, what would you say is like an overview of your your day to day as like a serverless cloud architect? You know, does it are you find do, are you finding that it differs from being a different kind of uh, infrastructure architect? Is there something specific about cloud? What what are some salient points about your day to day? That is a great question. I have actually never been asked that specifically before, so <laughs> we'll see what kind of clever answer I come up with. Uh, so really my job is, is primarily strategy. So it, it's strategy, right? Here's here's the vision. This is what we're going to be doing. This is how we're going to te- take the tech from where we are to where we really need to be in three, four, five years. You know, cloud years is like dog years, right? That's like 35 developer years. Uh, when you're talking about the cloud. Um, but the other part of my job, I would say, is a lot of developer advocacy, uh, it's it's creating content to share both internally and externally, uh, just to evangelize serverless, make it not scary. One of the things that we, uh, probably the hardest thing that I had when we started off with serverless was everybody was afraid of it. The, the question I got when <clears throat> we would start talking about it is, how are you going to manage all those lambdas? Let's say you get a, a really mature product. How are you going to manage them? What, what if you have 300? What are, you, what are you going to do? And I think that was here where I am now. That's kind of a silly question. Uh, it's it's just code, right? There's a, a common misconception uh, for people that don't do serverless that think serverless engineers poke around in the AWS console all day, every day. And that is very much not the case. It's, it's just like writing code in any other infrastructure set or or mechanism, right? It's all hosted in repositories and GitHub. You make your changes and it goes through CI pipelines and and goes into, into AWS just using infrastructure as code. So, you know, my answer to that question is always, how would you manage a large application? Uh, That's, that's not serverless. It's, it's all about structuring the code into different folders and and whatnot. So a, a big part of my job now is making sure that people are educated so they don't ask questions like that. So they can they can realize that the decision that we did that we made to go serverless was a good one. And it's basically the proof that this is how the future is shaping up to be and why you should embrace it. Well, it certainly sounds like, you know, you have uh, secured yourself uh, job security for the world, at least for the next, you know, uh, 87 serverless dog years. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I think in, in my experience at Serverless Guru, I think, you know, with clients or with, uh, you know, prospective individuals that are considering serverless, I think there is like an, an education aspect that... Uh, that the role definitely takes when you're sort of helping shepherd an organization or a person into, into serverless. And there, there can be that fear, like, well, how do I manage it all? But at the same time, you know, they're probably managing, like they're managing their large enterprise application anyway. And at various degrees of efficiency and various degrees of, uh, of, of success. And so I think that's like an important framing, a framing tool to really do. And, have sort of that uh, a growth mindset when it when it comes to these sort of conversations, because people are at different stages of their understanding of cloud and understanding of serverless. Um, you know, something that I have I have heard or I have seen is you know, which I'm I'm, I'm surprised by. And since I started working in this, I think this is a, a, a maturing of the marketplace. Of now, a lot of people I, I've talked to, they understand like I want. I want serverless. This is this is the paradigm. Uh, I really want to do it, but how do I implement this? Like, where do I start? You know, I have these Lotus servers that you know haven't been updated for five years, and I, I need to move to serverless. Like, you know, but how do I implement it? What should I be thinking about? Uh, for someone who's a- asking that question, how would you how would you answer? And that's a big question, 
But what are some key things that you would recommend someone really consider when they're uh, really looking to implement it? So there's a couple ways that I can answer your question there. Uh, let me let me get one clarifying question, then I'll then I'll go. So this would be someone who's trying to migrate from a legacy system in. Yes, this is going to be someone who's trying to migrate their legacy system to serverless. Yeah. Okay. I'm a big fan of the Strangler architecture pattern, uh, mm-hmm. which for anyone who's not not familiar with that, it's it's basically starting small. It's it's taking it taking your application piece by piece and migrating it over to the cloud, to the new way, and just starting to strangle out the old stuff. And, and that's, what I always, that's what I always practice and preach when it comes to serverless, is just start small. Really, the, I always just say, just start. Uh, I, I'm big, big, big into, into iteration when it comes to, to, comes to software. Now I say, software comes in three phases. Do it, do it right, and do it better. And when you're talking about migrating a legacy system in, the first thing you have to do is just do it. Let, let's see what this tiny piece of functionality does if we put it over in the cloud and we just you know flipped a bit to make it call that instead. So that's just try, I guess, is, is really the moral of the story. You know, you don't have to start big. It doesn't have to be a giant thing. You'll never know less than what you know right now. So just starting and doing it small at the beginning will help give you a better understanding of what you need to do to escalate that into a full migration. Just get comfortable with it. No, I love that. I think that's such a great philosophy of, of doing it, do it better and do it best, you know, in that, you know, paraphrase, because there can be so much paralysis. And I'm really interested, I have to ask a follow up of, you know, with, uh, with maybe some of the clients that that you're specializing in uh, of like, you know, governments, these larger, more public sector uh, entities, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say in my experience, fortunately, unfortunately, that 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 sort of mindset was something that I was a, I was uh, I was necessarily seeing. But, but do you see that maybe the uh, what is it? Uh, does the public sector sort of get a bad rap maybe in terms of the perception of how um how companies are run or maybe they are afraid of adopting new technology from what you're actually seeing. They're not wrong. <laughs> uh, government t- typically runs, this is going to sound like a large number, but it's true, like 30 years behind everything. Uh, but the way that the Tyler's position, position themselves when it comes to the cloud and, and, and cloud native offerings is kind of like the, it's, it's the same approach as if you were going to go to any website. Let's say we go to, to Google, right? It's always up. It's always there. As a consumer, I don't control the features or, or control anything. I don't know, honestly, how it works. You know, I assume it runs on GCP, but I don't know. It just works. And that's more or less the type of approach that we're, that we're trying to take with, with the whole cloud initiative is you don't have to care we'll handle all that hard stuff for you. And you can just go to this website that's always available and we'll scale no matter how many people you bring with you. No, no, but, but Josh, you're, you're totally right in, in the sense that the, the public sector does, does lag a bit. You know, sometimes it just takes some disruption to, to make some real motion. I, I fully agree in that. And, you know, I remember looking over like, a, what was it? like a request for proposal document for a government entity. And it sort of laid out just like the proposed project plan. And, you know, before any code was going to get written, we needed to spend a year and a half of just meetings talking about the potential plans that we were going to do. And, you know, you know, that's, that was the first time I'd ever come across something like that. And, um, you know, so there's so many people, um, you know, like ready, fire, aim. I think there is value to fire, aim, and then fire again of Mm -hmm. having some real good contextual context of what is it like to be writing code in this environment, to be deploying it, to working with these individuals. Like there's so much uh, tacit on the ground knowledge that an individual can gain. Uh, And as like consultants that like the consultancy can gain about an organization, Um, you know, that knowledge download. So many times there's like, you know, there's there's the technology problems or the technology solutions, uh, but I also see that there is like a an organizational um, 
not necessarily an organizational problem, but a change in the organizational worldview of how technology is approached, how development cycles, software development cycles are approached. How often or not do you sort of see in your position that you're also sort of having to, you know, you're also changing those a little bit as well, not just the technology itself. Are you finding they're coming hand in hand in some of these uh, engagements? It's, it's getting easier. You know, I don't want, I don't want to be that guy that says, I think the industry changed when COVID and lockdown happened, but I am going to be that guy that says, I think it has really made a, made a significant impact. And, and the reason I think that is because people just kind of want things to be easier now. And it, I think people have made the realization that if I can get somebody else to do this work, I don't have to, which that's always been a thing, right? But developers, from my experience, are always really hard-headed and say, I can do it better myself. But for whatever reason, staying at home for so long, people have said, I don't want to do that. I I don't want to maintain it. If I build it, I'm going to have to maintain it. If I can get somebody else to do it, that's great. And so what I'm seeing with that mentality shift, what I'm seeing is there's a lot more acceptance uh, for things that are driven by serverless, like API first design or consumption of APIs or the, the concept of assemble versus build, where I can just use native services or pre-made packages or, or whatever makes everything easier and makes things not my problem. So it's been a, it's been an interesting ride the, the past couple of years. It's been a, a pretty radical change, I think, in in the people that I interact with. That's exciting. I think that's really exciting to really exciting to see. You know, oh, whether I'm either going to reinvent or uh, like on the AWS side or or following up different cloud metrics, just to seeing you know how many like of the various industries, what percentage is utilizing cloud and then what percentage is using serverless inside that cloud bubble. You know, it's it's growing every 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 year, uh, but it's also still like very, very small compared to the whole to the whole pot. And so it's it's an interesting juxtaposition, I think, to, uh, you know, to see that data play out in real life and what that actually means as someone, uh, you know, like serving a consumer demographic uh, for for technology services and application modernization, I, I certainly am always finding that that fascinating. Um, and another thing I, I'd like to ask, because I may not necessarily be be super super sure. Uh, now, with Tyler Technologies, are are y'all primarily use, utilizing AWS, or is there a mix of GCP or or Azure? Or I understand, like in the public sector, I know there's a lot of if they're migrating or if they're using some sort of like paper paper compute service, there's a lot of GCP in that world as well. And you know, how is how is that dance? The uh, you know multi cloud conversations and uh, <laughs> and um, you know vendor vendor lock in and, and those sort of you know I think are less problems. I I hear uh, certainly from the private sector, like none at all. Uh, but from the public sector conversations, those are questions that that still happen uh, that I've been receiving. Um, how do you sort of approach that? Are you seeing those decrease at all? I'm interested in your experience. Yeah, that that's a, another good question. These are all really good questions. Um, thank you, thank you. They, <laughs> there's a lot of, of, of I'm going to say, of course, but it's probably not obvious to people that aren't in this in this domain. But of course, there's a lot of hesitation when it comes to things like data security when we're talking about government data right? What's your social security number? Where do you live? What's all your court addresses? What, what's your full background? Do you have any warrants out for your arrest? Uh, you know, what, everything about you, right? The all things the that stuff. the bad, yeah, the, the stuff that the malicious users want to get is it, all controlled, uh, all controlled by these, by the customers of, of Tyler. And so, you know, over the years, they've built up all these requirements to say, I need network diagrams. I need uh, all these things. I need IP whitelisting. I need all of this in a guarantee written in writing that this hardware isn't going to be shared, uh, so on and so forth, right? Rightly so, uh, because this is extremely sensitive data. AWS knows that. They, they, They work with these people all the time. And they do an incredibly good job 
at securing all these things. All the stuff that you get just by using AWS is, is remarkable. Uh, the stuff that we build is in the GovCloud within AWS. So it has another full layer of things that you can and can't do uh, to provide this kind of security, to, to maintain all these different certifications that these government agencies are looking for. Uh, so Tyler is a partner with, with AWS and they are our, uh, I can't, Tyler's a very big company, so I can't say with 100% certainty that we're exclusive to AWS, uh, but uh, we try to be, we're, we're a good partner. And, you know, we, we get a lot of benefit from working with them. And I think because of all the benefits that we get with AWS, all, of, all the effort that they've put forth to make everything secure, to kind of put people's minds at risk, or I said that exact opposite, minds at rest, um, we don't get as much pushback as we used to uh, in answer to your question. All right. No, that's that's good to know. I think it's I think it's very interesting and I know like for us at Serverless Guru, we also have like a like I'm sure Tyler also has a very wide like international marketplace, but it's been interesting to see where the clients coming from, like where are the organizations coming from, what are they using, uh, depending on where they are, uh, both in the United States and the world. Um uh, it's 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 quite fascinating. Um I do think overall I have seen more of a uh more requests around AWS and more requests of, uh, or, or like less conversations about worrying about vendor lock-in or, or being like, we need to make this multi-cloud. Uh, yeah. Usually, yeah. Yeah. Uh, thankfully those requests have, have, have gone down just from like a operational standpoint. I just remember how inefficient sometimes those were, those were, especially in situations where like the, like the individual teams or the client teams had no knowledge whatsoever and they were making their engineers or trying to learn different SYNCE systems at once in order to hit their deadlines because there's a government audit like uh, pending. And it's just, you know, we, we can make our lives easier. You know, if maybe we'll, I'll also agree and say maybe the, the pandemic and switching to a remote world made us realize that, you know, if we can make life simpler in certain ways, potentially it's the better option. Definitely. So, you know, I would say recently, would you say that there is, um, you know, a project that you've worked on, worked on at Tyler or a certain project, you know, I don't know, within the past year that you think very much like exemplifies, uh, you know, the things that you love to do as a, as an architect, as a serverless, as a serverless architect, like what was that process like? Um, and could you walk me through it? Just like, a, just like a little bit, you can give me the cliff notes version of it. Sure. Sure. So last year was a was a big year for me for learning, and, and that's that's one of the things that I love about this job is that every day I get to learn something and and try to stay up to date. You know, cloud moves so fast. There's always literally always something for you to look at. Uh, you can close a browser, open it up again, and there's something new. Uh, but last year we uh, built a, an application from idea to uh, production in nine months using serverless. Uh, and it was a digital evidence management uh, application called electronic discovery. Uh, the high level business process is uh, police officers upload uh, evidence to the system via web page. And then people on the justice side, the, the court side uh, can, can take a look at that evidence figure out what can and can't be used in court and pass that along uh, to the people that, that actually are going to consume it in court. And that was, that was something that architecturally uh, serverlessly that, that was a fun, fun experience because dealing with files, uh, small files, large files, it's not trivial. It, it takes the, it takes a standard API and kind of turns it on its head in the sense that I'm not just dealing with data, I'm dealing with a payload as well. And so, you know, we took many iterations. We did it, we did it better, and then, or we did it, we did it right, and then we did it better uh, over the course of that that nine months where we're, we just uploaded files uh, straight through. Our very first iteration was passing in files straight to a Lambda, and then that goes into S3, but you shouldn't ever do that. Uh, Lambda has a 
a uh, payload size limit. And once you get to large files, if you try to upload, a let's say, a dash cam video from all day, that's not going to go through Lambda. It's too large. So we had to switch over to, to pre-signed URLs and, and pass that down where it lets the, the client upload directly into S3 instead of passing through a Lambda function. So we learned that lesson. And then talking about these large files, these large dash cam or body cam videos, those are giant. Those are like 50 gig files. And you can't really upload that to uh, to a single uh, upload URL. I mean, you can, but if your internet goes out or flickers for half a second, you got to restart, and, and that can take a long time. Uh, so we learned how to do multi-part uploads, and you know br- how do we break things up into little individual chunks to make those things go up and go faster. And again, this is all all done in serverless, so we're trying to to process everything communicate with S3 to, to send the correct pre-signed URLs down that expire after a certain amount of time based on the size of the file, so on and so forth. You know, And then we started doing that, and then people started closing the app because it looked like things were working, and they would come back and were kind of out of luck. So we had to start implementing retries in multi-part uploads uh, and resumes and, and trying to figure out how do we, how do, we do that all, all in serverless. How do you maintain that state in a stateless environment? And it, it's all, it was all a very interesting problem to solve. And there was just no way for us to know that that was coming when we were initially designing it. I mean, now I kind of know, but if I had to do it again, I'd probably end up making following the same path because there, it's just a, a very interesting set of problems that evolve as you get further down the line. But we did a lot of work with, with document management and and whatnot and all the serverless fun and uh with files like we do processing of of files somebody uploads a a pdf we go in and and determine you know does it have text in it if it doesn't let's go ahead and an ocr it using textract and put that text layer in automatically let's detect the pii in there the the personally identifying information and let's offer that as something that you can redact automatically. So you don't want to see this information. You don't want to show the people in the court, the credit card information for this person. It's all, it's all been a really fun experience and it's all kind of tied together with Lambda S3 step functions and API gateway. I would say that's 90%. The other 10% uh, event firing things like SNS and, and EventBridge. Wow. Incredible. That sounds like such like a, you know, Hey, like, you know, I always love when I hear about, you know, uh, products that sound incredibly useful and that they're like improving the lives of, of users uh, in, in that way. And as someone who's had to, you know, witness and, and nearly suffer through several bouts of jury duty in their life, you know, I can only imagine that would be a more efficient process than what I had previously witnessed in the courtroom. Uh, so, no, that is that's absolutely incredible. Um, no, definitely. And I wanted to. Um, you know, I wanted to, you know, you know, sh- sh- shift a little bit and, you know, sort of like think about like, you know, I know you're also an AWS community builder. Um, you know, how do you find the time to give back to the community when you're building things like this, being a master of cloud strategy as well? At, at Tyler, how do you see, you know, you know, your, your, your role, your role in the space as someone who's been identified as, uh, you know, someone who, who makes this serverless world a better place? So it, it ends up being a couple of different things. Yeah. Uh, first, I enjoy it. I genuinely enjoy talking about it, writing about it. So I reached out to you uh, to come out here and talk because I just like I like evangelizing. I, I, I really like getting people to get excited about what I'm excited about. Uh, so, you know, I find the time I wake up before my kids and before my wife so I can have a little bit of time before people get online and whatnot for me to research, write some code put something up on, on GitHub and write a blog post about something that I care about that I'm learning about. And then I turn around and use what I just did for work. There's a lot of overlap, uh, a lot of overlap there because I'm just so, I, it's not just a job, which is nice. Uh, I actually do care and I actually am very excited about all these things. So I, I take the opportunity to learn, help other people learn 
and then teach people internally and, and externally. So lots of overlap between the two, as it turns out. Oh, that that's fantastic to hear. You know, as a as a wise man once told me, if you do what you love, then you'll never work a day in your life. And so, you know, I think, you know, what you've described certainly, uh, you know, exemplifies uh, some of that wisdom, too, which is which is fantastic and and can be rare. And, you know, life is too short anyway. So might as well. Absolutely. You know, just just love what's love what's going on. And um I think that brings me to like, you know, what is it about like serverless specifically uh, that you find, uh, I don't know, that, that, that emboldens you and makes you so passionate necessarily uh, about that? Because there's so many different kinds of like cutting edge technology uh, things that sort of like exist. So I think maybe it's not just it's not just it's a it's a cool new technology. But what do you see that really, you know, captivates you? That's a long list. <laughs> uh, but I'll start. <clears throat> it's easy. It's genuinely easy. You know, somebody who has never done it before could, in theory, build something, have it deploy into the cloud and have an API that you could actually hit in like five minutes. That That is something that you could actually do. Uh, it's it's a relatively low barrier to entry uh, and, and it's fun. And it doesn't matter what programming language you use because uh, vendors like AWS support most of them. I know I'm... I know I'm going to get raised on that one, um, <laughs> but <laughs> it support a lot of the mainstream uh, programming languages. So if you want to try, you can, you probably already know a programming language that Lambda supports uh, exactly. and you don't it doesn't even necessarily mean you should use it, but it will support it. True. True. I did mention that I was a .NET engineer uh, for, for a long time when we started in, in .NET uh, in serverless the cold starts were, were pretty atrocious. I know they're better now, but when we started a few years ago, it was like 22nd Lambda warm-up time. Yep. And that was like, well, we got to go to a scripting language instead. So everybody uh, everybody learned JavaScript and we just started using using Node and you know got those cold start times down to a second. That was much nicer. Perfect, and I'm sure I'm and I'm sure you know you don't regret that transition. So, uh, no, no, not at all. You heard it uh, here, but, folks. You too can stop writing your lambdas in uh, <laughs> in C sharp .net <laughs> and learn a scripting language instead, and you won't regret it. So, you know, they are fast. I mean, to to give .net it credit where credits due, you know, it it is blazingly fast when when that hot you know pretty much any compiled language is going to be extremely yes. fast after that lambda is hot just want to add that qualifier in there i'm not gonna i'm not here to slander anything very good very good no exactly the new nuances is, is so incredibly important because what is it you know one one pattern does not fit all use cases and i think yeah, i find it it is very very contextual um <clears throat> to 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 the need and like what is the need of the end user you know thinking for me, I like to also, I like to think that, you know, technology does serve a purpose and serverless is amazing because it does have like this lower total cost of ownership, this world where theoretically, you know, anyone could sort of pick it up and have access to many of the benefits, um, just with their basic, uh, knowledge of, of software engineering. Um, but, you know, potentially, you know, it may be an over, uh, an overstatement in the sense that, you know, from the work that you're seeing, um, are you finding that solutions are very specific to these different clients within the pub public sector uh, or their like general patterns or general architectural, um, general architectural patterns, or, you know, at the very least services that you're seeing used all the time, regardless. Uh, and the ones that pop up the most, um, you know, why do you think they're being used so much? Well, what Tyler's actually an off the shelf company. So we're not trying to build custom solutions for everybody that's that's out there. Uh, we go out and we have really good analysts. A lot of times our analysts have worked in this space before and they come in and we hire them at Tyler and they help us figure out what, what does the industry need in this space? Like for the electronic discovery uh, application I was telling you about, you know, we have analysts that that know exactly what, what that space is in, in justice. And of course, there's going to be nuance. But I think what we're seeing, again, in industry change is, I don't have to have it the same way that I've always done it before, I can do it 90% of my business process, and then change a little bit to do what this software already does. 
Perfect. No, I think that that's great. That definitely, uh, definitely answers my question. And I think that's, you know, uh, uh, it's a, it's a great approach to know that, you know, your solution is, you know, usable by a, the entire industry or many different individuals. So that's, uh, that's absolutely fantastic in that way. Now, something else that we were chatting about a bit beforehand that I'd love to get to, uh, know a little bit more, especially in the spirit of, um, I don't know, learning how to do things, learning how to do things easier or being able to, you know, take some time to relax. Uh, what is, I hear you're an avid runner. Uh, and that's really interesting because, you know, by what is it? My mom ran, ran marathons all the time growing up, looped me into a lot. I never was a competitor, but I did have friends, friends who were, um, state and track and then went on to do D3 and D1. Uh, sort of sports in college. And so on the spectrum of, you know, recreational runner to a hardcore competitor, you know, how did you find yourself running and, and where do you sort of fit in that? I would say it, I was kind of at the bottom tier of hardcore competitor. Wow. Uh, so I would go out and, and, you know, pick your distance. I, I'm a long distance runner. Uh, I ran in high school. I, I did not compete in college. Um, but I did start doing longer distance running when I was in college. Uh, I did my first half marathon, I think six months after I graduated high school. And then I did my first marathon, probably six months after my first year of college. Uh, and I really like it. I like being able to kind of just tune out and go. And, uh, that, that got me a long way. I, I ended up competing at, at a pretty, pretty solid level. You know, I was, I was invited to a few races. Um, I competed in all pretty much all the major marathons, the New York, Chicago, Boston. Wow. Um, there's others in there somewhere. Uh, I did a lot of trail running, a lot of trail running. I actually hold the records, the trail records for, almost every race around this area. Uh, it's, it's been, it's been a lot of fun, you know, it, and what I really like about running is, is the time that I get to kind of just focus on one thing. You know, running, I have my heart rate that's steady. Yes, it's high, but it's steady. Uh, and, and I just can tune out and, and focus. And that, that was one of the things I actually wrote a blog post on it that I, attribute my software career to running because it has it, it's given me focus it's let it lets me know that no matter how hard something is it is going to end it without a doubt it will always end mile 22 of a marathon is is the worst mile and i think any marathoner will tell you that you know you still have four more but your legs feel like they're going to fall off pretty much every time yeah. and you know it's just it's going to end you know, you'll just keep going and then it'll end in whatever amount of time. Uh, and you know, it, it shows that hard work, hard work pays off. You know, I, I trained hard. I got up early every day and ran hard and then raced hard and had success. And I took that kind of mentality and brought it over to, to work where I, I study hard and focus hard and try to try to give that to, to other people as well. I, I think that's amazing. And I think, you know, I can definitely, I can definitely relate and I can see different patterns. You know, if you've been able to, uh, you know, find success in one area of life, you know, the discipline one gains from being able to, uh, being able to do that, you know, it's sort of like, sort of like the, the cheat codes, the Konami cheat codes to, <laughs> to use in use in other areas. Um, and run, running is really fantastic because like, you're definitely right about that. Like the, like 20 second mile, like to be able to, you know, train the mind and train the body to be able to uh, continue to do something, even though in that moment, you know, it's not very pleasurable. Uh, it's not, you know, fun and happy and easy, but there is, uh, you know, a re reward in that completion. And the, uh, the determination that gets built is, uh, you know, it's like hard, hard to compete with, you know, that's definitely a skill. That's certainly a skill to have. Yeah, not not to mention, you know, the the endorphins are pretty great, and you do almost quite literally get addicted to those as well. 
Oh, absolutely. And, you know, a great thing to to feel addicted to is, you know, being healthy and, and doing something really incredible. So it's a super win, super win there. Um, and sure. I'm glad because you answered the other part I was going to I was going to ask you, which was, you know, how related do you find running uh, to your to your software development career? And how are those things tied together? Because I hadn't read, read your blog post, but I find it interesting. People sort of that I've talked to fall into two camps, especially when they're maybe like, hyper excelling in several different in, in two you know seemingly unrelated areas um you know running or software engineering there's there's a group of folks i talk to that falls into you know this is the thing that lets me completely forget about this other part of my life and it's yeah. very bifurcated and i and i don't mix i don't mix the two and then there's others which are you know it's all it's more holistic like it's all integrated in they're feeding back into each other um is is there one is there one that you feel closer? I, I'm feeling like from what you said, it's maybe a bit more holistic, but is there, is there a bifurcation of, you know, when you're running, you're like only, only running, but it def definitely seems like there is some synergy between the two. Oh, there definitely is. I couldn't even tell you how many problems I've solved at work on a run wow. it, where I, you know, bang my head on the keyboard for, you know, eight hours a day for three days. And then I, I get up and go do, let's say it's a track workout, finish a repeat. And I'm like, that's it. That's what I needed to try. And, and come back and that that was the answer you know that, that that's uh that's how i solved the problem it definitely definitely related fantastic fantastic what is it i had a friend who uh what is it who once uh they were like the the private chef for this event at the bohemian grove i don't know if you've heard of it before but it's just like a place where a bunch of big wigs to get together and um what is it in like the forests of like Northern California and you have like CEOs and CTOs and famous actors from, you know, all over the place and they get together. And an interesting thing he told me was that, you know, all these people, uh, you know, all of them have like some artistic hobby or some athletic hobby that they're like incredible at. Like, yes, they're like a CEO of Pfizer, but they're also like a sculptor, like, like these very interesting mixes and matches of, uh, of skills and disciplines. So I think, you know, you know, correlation is not causation, but it's an interesting data point of, of, of extremities to sort of be at. So, you know, keep up the marathons and, you know, uh, you know, who, who knows, who knows what will happen next, I think. <laughs> and so another thing that I had, um, I had been informed of was that you sort of had something happen within the past six months. You moved out to uh, the fake country in, 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 in that way. What has that experience been like? You know, I actually, I moved right before the first waves of lockdowns in, in 2020. And part of me can't imagine moving uh, sort of during the COVID times, just because of uh, all the stuff that's going on. But I don't know, what is it like? What was it like to move? And uh, how do you like the place where you're at now? It, uh, I'll start with saying, I feel like I moved to a chore factory hmm. mm -hmm. in a, in a good and a bad way. Uh, so I only moved about five miles from where I, for I had lived here in, in North Texas, uh, just right up the road to a place that I feel like my, my city has forgotten, like legitimately, uh, this is why I call it the fake country. So I live right off of a, a relatively major highway. I can see it but I'm far enough away where I can't hear it, which is nice. Um, it's just a, a cul-de-sac that's literally off this main highway. And there's 16 houses on this street. And every, uh, every one of the houses has two or more acres of land. And all around us are just little, uh, you know, houses on their matchbox plots. That's how I would describe what I moved from. You know, I could, uh, almost touch my back door and my fence at the same time at my old house, uh, moving over to, to something with, with two acres and everything around my street is like that. Uh, which is why I call it the fake country because I can look out my back window and I don't see anybody. I, I, I don't see houses. I don't see power lines. I just see my acreage directly behind my house, which is super cool. But you know, I can, look another way and I can see a highway and then I can see a hospital and, and all that. So it, it feels like a country when you look out the back of the house. Um, but, uh, it's, it's been great. I actually really like it a lot. Um, you know, my, my wife and I have always wanted uh, a little bit more land so we can get some animals to teach our, our girls. Like we have two girls, um, three and 
one and a half. And we want to teach them responsibility. So we moved out here to give them some, give them an opportunity to, you know, let we have land that we need to take care of. So let's do that. Obviously they'll grow into that. I'm not going to go make them ride a tractor around the backyard when they're three. Exactly. But, uh, you know, we, we just got chickens, uh, about a month ago and we've been raising the chickens from, you know, little tiny hatchlings, uh, up to, to full size hens. It's, it's been very cool. It's been, been very fun. Uh, we, we really enjoy it. I would actually highly recommend it to anybody that has any desire to do that. It's definitely worth it. No, that, that's, that's fantastic. I know my, my partner and I, what is it? We are, we got, we got chickens, we got chicks, um, about a year and a half ago and now they're full grown hens and you know, what is it just like raising them? We built a coop for them. We don't, we don't have a ton of land right now, just a quarter but I think our house is like a quarter acre plot, uh, but we built them a coop and everything. And just like getting to like watch them grow and take care of them is like a, like a good distraction, but of like the things that go on in the world, but also like a good, I think way to anchor of like, what's like important, like, you know, taking care of things, being responsible, making the, the world and your life a better place in your family, family better from your own actions, I think is something we all can really agree on. Um, there's also really interesting data around, what happens to the mind and the brain and the kind of relaxation that's possible when you have wide open spaces that you get to uh, get to like live on and look out to. So I think that's something, you know, I'm certainly trying to integrate more into my life. So that's really, really interesting. To, that's really great to hear that, you know, you're, you're already, you know, doing that in that way. Uh, do you have like a top list of, of animals that you're hoping to get, you know, cows, sheep, buffalo? I don't know. There's, there's a lot of stuff <laughs> you can probably do. Yeah. Uh, so we got the chickens. We'll, we'll be good with those. Um, I have a whole like pipeline of animals, which is a weird, really weird phrase to say. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're going to, we're definitely going to do goats uh, here in a little bit. We'll, we'll let the chickens mature and figure out how much the kids actually help with that. See, can we actually get another, another type of animal? We'll get goats, might get some sheep. Uh, once we get those, those kind of, ruminants will probably get a, a little bit bigger of a dog i have i have two yorkies and they can't uh protect or, or do anything so they may think they can but you wouldn't want to you know they're not hurting anything that is true that is true if you ask them they think they're 10 feet tall that's <laughs> that's for sure uh, so we'll get a bigger dog and then you know that that's kind of as far as our our plans go for now we'll see how it escalates it almost always does no, that sounds fantastic. And and what is it? I didn't necessarily confirm, but are you working remote? Are you able to, or do you have to commute in? Okay, perfect. Yep, yep, working remote, which is good for today. There's a lot of ice on the road uh, today. Um, we don't have to go into office pretty much ever, but we we can. And sometimes that's what that's what we do. I'll I'll ask the team, hey, I have some things I want to whiteboard out with you guys. Uh, can can we all come in and and meet up? Because as good as the virtual tools are for whiteboarding, nothing nothing is even close to everybody getting in a room and drawn with markers on the board. So we'll do that maybe once a month. Uh, usually it's less frequent than that, but it's, it's good stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, tis the theme I think of this, uh, of just the conditions of the world and that sort of thing. And so something I found, I think it's, it's been an interesting, like, uh, I don't know, leveling of the playing field as far as like some certain things get done. Um, Cause like if everyone is learning how to work remotely, then, you know, either like ever, there's so many people that had to learn from scratch. Um, and then I think in the, in the, in the tech space and certainly with individuals that, that I've been working with, um, maybe we've had a little bit more experience or we've had, you know, a, some experience of like, Oh, I'm going to be able to work from home one day a week or a couple days a week or taking a vacation and sort of tuning in and still doing, doing our work. Uh, so we sort of had like a, like a little edge in that way. Um, yeah. And so, you know, we're all at different levels of the, of, of the, of the spectrum. Um, do you think right now, the way the remote work situation, just like for you, is this sort of a uh, sort of ideal in, in, uh, in your mind or, or could you imagine a, a different way uh, of doing it or a better way of doing it in the future? I really like remote. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan. I, I don't live far from work. It's about a, a 30 minute commute and in Texas, that's not a long, that's not a long commute. Um, but I don't have to do it. You know, that's an hour that I get back 
most days that I can spend with my kids. I had I had a kid. My second daughter was born during the lockdown, and I have gotten to be home her entire life. Yeah, and so I've got to see. I, I have gotten to see her grow up in these like super critical baby phases because I got to be at home, which I would not have traded that ever. I, I will never trade that. I will never want anybody to not have that ability ever. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, those are the things in life that you can't, uh, you know, you can never get back, can't replicate it and they're so special. So that's certainly the, one of the benefits of remote work that, you know, you know, however, however things continue to unfold, uh, you know, nothing is worth trading that up. So I'm interested to see how, uh, how, how all of that unfolds. Um, you know, Alan, if there's like, you know, if people want to follow up with you or talk with you or, or like, hey, pick your brain more about serverless and potentially, uh, I don't know, even talk to talk to Tyler, like, how would they how would they reach out? How would they talk to you? Uh, how would uh, they get your contact info? Yeah, Twitter is, is going to be the best way to, to contact me, Alan Helton Dev. Uh, I, I monitor that pretty regularly and I'm happy to extend any additional methods of contact through there but that's that's definitely line one fantastic no that's perfect and i can also what is it signal to the listeners that we will have that information for sure in our description and the in the show notes for this for this podcast um you know i definitely don't want to hold you any 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 hang you too long i'm glad that we have been able to chat today uh is there anything else you wanted to um you want to say before we sort of wrap up are there any projects or things that you're you're working on or, or a question for the audience that you'd like them to uh, to answer so one of the big things that i'm spending a lot of time on in the mornings while i'm researching so i can get ready to bring back a, a big proposal here to tyler is, is event driven architectures and, and so what I'm trying to do right now is I'm gathering feedback from everybody. What do you want to see? What do you want to know about event-driven architectures? Assuming that you know nothing, what would you want to see or hear about when it comes to events-driven? That, that's uh, I'm right now just com- consolidating and compiling a lot of resources so I can educate people on what is event-driven, how do you track things through the system that are you know bounced back and forth through events, uh, everything from, from head to toe. So, you know, if there's anything that you think would be valuable to, to help teach somebody, I would, I would love to hear it. Fantastic. Well, you heard it here, folks. What do you want to know about in terms of event-driven architectures? What would be helpful for you to start this process? If you're starting the process of learning about it, um, what things are tripping you up? Um, Alan will be your guy. We'll be your, we'll be your team to help you uh, get that get that information. So uh, absolutely, this this is a this is a good point. We can also create some. Maybe we can create a poll too. Uh, so let's touch base on this, and we can uh, see what information we can gather. Sounds good. Fantastic. Awesome. Well. Thank you so much, Alan, for uh, for joining us today on Talking Serverless. I've had a great time. I've had a great conversation. Uh, and to everyone listening, uh, you know, this has been the Talking Serverless podcast. If you if you like what you heard uh, with your co-host, Josh Proto, please feel free to check out our website, talkingserverless.io, and please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this. It definitely helps us and uh, helps all of our guests, too. Everyone gets to learn more about all the amazing things that they're doing in the world of serverless. Um, so thank you so much, everyone. And until next time, uh, this is Talking Serverless signing off.